0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm CJ, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jonathan Sadowski about his new book, The Empire Depression, A New History, put out by Polity Press this year. Welcome, Jonathan. Um,
1: It's good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I wonder to begin the interview. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about yourself. How'd you come into history, and specifically history of psychiatry and depression?
1: Well, it's a you know like any big topic. It's you know like any big life decision. It's um, it's a long and complicated question, and um, and uh, motivations for these things are always highly overdetermined. determined. Um, I often say that um, the moment I really became interested in history was in an undergraduate course. Uh, actually, it was a course on imperialism, and we were studying the role of technology in imperialism. And my, um, my professor, who was a, an Africa scholar, asked us how important was technology in um, the rise of European hegemony. And I raised my hand and said, well, it seems to me that depends who you read. And he said, yes, but I want to know what you think. And that was really such a, you know, revelation to me that, you know, that was sort of the moment that it all clicked to me that um, history was about developing your own interpretation of the past and and not necessarily following a previous authority. And. Um, that professor sparked my interest in African history. I started following him from uh, course to course, and ultimately did uh, an honors thesis on South African history. And then I, in graduate school, I I trained in African history. And if you had told me, when I was entering graduate school that I would work on the history of, of medicine or science, I actually would have thought, you were crazy. I didn't think that was my interest at all. I was interested in various things, urban history, art history, um, cultural history. One of my favorite uh, works of history uh, when I was in graduate school was actually not a monograph. It was a collection of essays. It was um, Karl Schorske's Fantasiek Vienna. And I loved that book so much, and I, I thought, wow, to recreate a city's cultural life like that, and that was sort of one of the things that really inspired me. Um, and interestingly enough, of course, um, Shorska in the book writes about Freud, but that wasn't really the heart of the issue to me. And then when I was in my first semester of my PhD program, I was taking a course on the social history of Africa. And I um, was assigned an article by Megan Vaughan, a great African historian. And it was about um, a so called lunatic asylum in colonial Africa, specifically Nyasaland, which is now Malawi. And the question, the the questions she raised really were the questions that ultimately became my first book, which is, how did these institutions function across cultural frontiers? How did, um, how did British institutions make determinations of madness when madness we know to be culturally variable? And as you know from reading my new book, that's still a topic that interests me. And it's one that's uh, uh, quite complex. After I read Vaughn's article, I remember thinking, wow, that is such an interesting topic, and I, uh, somebody really ought to write an entire book about that, but I still didn't think it was going to be me. Then that summer, I went on a pre-dissertation, uh, sort of fishing expedition to Nigeria, which is the country I did my dissertation about. And um, I was looking for things about urban history and an archivist put a document uh, about 35 pages long, if I remember correctly, a document about colonial lunatic asylums, brought it to my desk. And that was that. I just, from that point on, I uh, knew that I wanted to do that for my dissertation and Then I won uh, from the SSRC an interdisciplinary training grant, um, which allowed me to spend um, a semester studying some of the scientific aspects of the work. Um, This was an old program the SSRC had, which was really great. But um, anyway, uh, I got to study in a psychiatric epidemiology program, and that allowed me to learn a little bit more about clinical psychiatry. Um, I, one of the things I learned in that semester was that, in fact, psychiatry had given a lot more thought to these kinds of cross-cultural questions that interested me than I had realized. And I learned a little bit about epidemiology, not to the extent that I can actually do or epidemiology or be an epidemiologist, but that I can read it and and understand how it works and and know what a persuasive epidemiology paper is and what is not. So then I came to uh, Case Western Reserve and they, um, my colleagues in the history department here, which, as you may know, it's a department that has a long history of interest in science and technology. Um, they really encouraged me to uh, develop a course repertoire in medical history. And that is to not strictly be uh, a historian of Africa. And I, I still teach African history. But gradually, over time, my interests, um, for various reasons, shifted a little bit, I got an, my second book project was about US psychiatry. And I identify more now as a historian of psychiatry and medicine, who's interested in comparative contexts, than than strictly an Africanist, um, the other thing I would say about how I came to this. So two things actually. One is that um, some years ago I began teaching a course on the history of depression, specifically, um, and uh, it's actually a, it sounds may sound odd given the gloominess of the subject, but it's been an exciting course to teach. Um, Students are always very energized. And um, I've, you know, it's been one of my favorite classes to teach. And I drew a lot on that course in, in writing the book. So my last book was about electroconvulsive therapy, which is a treatment for severe affective disorders primarily. And after it came out, I decided to spend the summer of 2017 deciding what my next book topic was going to be. And I had a few things in mind, and I was reading, and I was, uh, got an unexpected email from an editor at Polity Books saying, we want to do a new series on the histories of illnesses. Uh, you've been recommended to us as somebody who could do a book on depression. Are you interested? And I said, "Oh, you bet I am." Um, I hadn't thought of that as a topic for a book, but it certainly seemed very. Uh, I certainly had the background for it. I still don't know who recommended me to the press, but I owe that person a great debt because uh, the book was really. Um, uh, to, sorry for the cliche, but it was a labor of love. I I put a lot of um, I put a lot into it, and I. Like the course, despite the seriousness of the topic, I enjoyed working on it.
0: Well, it's fantastic to hear. I really appreciate the detail you went into um, about, you know, even, even that first question, right? That first question of like, well... Actually, I can become an authority on this if I if I went into it, you know, if I if I studied it. So that's really interesting to hear. And going from that one question to this fantastic book, I was wondering what what you know with this because there you know there are of course other books on the history of depression. Why a, a new history? Um, and and I think we'll get into this you know, with, with some follow-up questions around, uh, depression as empire in two senses, because, uh, one of the things that of course is unique as you brought up in your, in your, uh, answer just now is how comparative, uh, your approach is.
1: Yeah. Um, well, that was one of the things that I really wanted to bring to the project. Um, I think that, um, I think that previous, there's been a lot of anthropological work on depression. And really, that's our main source of the history of depression in most other contexts. There has been a little bit of work by historians. um, But most historians who've looked into the cross-cultural literature on depression uh, didn't frankly go all that deep. And it's an important question because um, one of the Um, one of the big questions that hangs over the study of depression is how culture bound it is as an illness. And you can't really do a serious, um, investigation of that problem if you're not well versed in the anthropological literature. So that was one thing that I really wanted to bring, um, bring to it that I didn't see in some of the previous work. The question of the culture boundedness of depression is an extremely difficult one to resolve. And um, and as you know, having read the book, I'm very comfortable making definitive judgments when I think they are possible, but I'm also careful not to make them when I think there are legitimate ambiguities and two sides to a question. And I think this question of the universality or culture boundedness of depression is one of those questions that is extremely hard to bring to definitive resolution. My own view is on balance. The evidence is that this is a fairly widespread illness. Um, I don't really completely by the argument that it's being found in it's now being found in to a great extent in non-western contexts because of a kind of cultural imperialism where our labels are it, it is true that the the word depression and the the medical sort of the medical science behind it and the cultural baggage behind it. It's true that when you use the word in a context that had different language for it, there are, there is a, a translatability problem. And, um, so I'm not actually arguing that the ailment is exactly the same all over the world and, and always has been. What I am saying is that I think that, uh, Various parts of uh, various cultures have recognized a loose group of illnesses uh, associated with grief and and so forth that are part of uh, a family, and I use the Wittgensteinian concept of family resemblances to describe them. But having said all that, I had other motivations in writing this new history, and do you want me to go into those now? Sure, why not? Okay. So um, I don't even know that I can cover all of the things that I wanted to bring. Of course, you know, in history, we always, as historians, I think we're frequently motivated by um, seeing things that we think are missing or overstated, or understated in the existing work, and that, of course, is why you know we have our graduate students do comprehensive fields because you can't you can't build on other people if you don't know what they've already done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and in my case, um, you know there there are, for example, one thing, one theme that's very common in a lot of the historical. And social science study of depression now is what I call the lament over di- about overdiagnosis, the alarm that uh, all forms of human uh, m- misery are being subsumed under this under this category, and that um, you know are are all these people really depressed? And because the numbers you know the the world health organization numbers for example are extremely high i don't think we should take those numbers necessarily at face value um i think it's very hard to know exactly how many people are depressed because we're all we're all working possibly with very different definitions of what it means to be clinically depressed. But I didn't want to write another lament about overdiagnosis. I wanted to give this question of overdiagnosis its due. But I do think that um, the arguments, there are other ways of accounting for the high numbers. Um, And I think it's important to remember that maybe 70 to 80 years ago, many psychiatrists and other public health special, mental health specialists were worried that we were underdiagnosing depression. And so from their point of view, the high numbers now are maybe just counting the numbers that they expected to see all along. This brings me to another point, which is that, you know, there is a certain strand in the literature on in the historical literature of on depression, where the numbers of people taking antidepressants are cited. And then it's taken as self evident that, well, you know, all these people can't really be depressed. And, you know, I don't know, it seems to me that that's very similar to what people said about many psychoanalytic patients, uh, calling them the worried well, they're not really sick. And um, there's a, a certain, to my mind, a certain remove from the human pain involved in uh, in that kind of formulation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in order to try to minimize that, remove from the human pain and this is another area where I tried to um, move the literature forward a little bit was that I wanted to look at the self-representation as I did in the chapter on memoir primarily um, I guess two more things I would add about my motivations although I as I said I could go on and on about this but the other the two other things that I want to add is that, Depression has a politics of inequality about it. And I think that's been largely overlooked in much of the existing literature, at least the historical literature. It's certainly not overlooked in the epidemiology or the sociology. But the historians who've worked on depression really have not um, looked at this very deeply. I think there's a lot more work to be done on it. There has been historical work on gender. Um, some of which is very inconclusive. Um, but, and of course, gender is extremely important. But the class dimensions of this race, ethnicity, other as, aspects of human inequality, social inequality, um, I, I wanted to bring that more into the discussion. And finally, you know, in a way, this whole field of the history of depression as a, as a scholarly subfield within the existing subfield of the history of psychiatry really exploded after 1990 or thereabouts. And the reason for that is obvious. It can be summed up in one word, Prozac. So we we came into an era of, um, of antidepressants, uh, an age of Prozac, as more than one historian has called it. Well, one result of that is that much of the existing literature, historical literature, really focuses on the antidepressants. And there have been lots of other treatments for depression, and they have not been given their historical due. Um, Mm -hmm. Psychodynamic psychotherapy. um, I could be wrong about this, but um, I really think I went into the history of psychoanalytic uh, approaches to depression at much greater length than anyone else has. Um, ECT, there are other people who've written monographs on ECT, as I have, but in the general histories of depression, other it's barely mentioned, which is kind of bizarre, actually, because uh, many psychiatrists consider ECT to be the single most effective treatment in psychiatry's repertoire. Now, I'm of course aware that that's a controversial statement because it's a controversial therapy. But ima- can you imagine another area of medicine where this you write about the history of a particular illness and the treatment that the majority of practitioners consider to be the most effective gets barely mentioned? That's really weird, and. Mm-hmm. I could go on, I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy. So um, I just wanted to really give a a deeper appreciation of the variety of treatments. And I guess, you know, here's one last thought about this, about motivation. I think that um, I was giving a a talk yesterday to um, the Richardson seminar in the history of psychiatry. And I talked about what I call the lacrimose style in history of psychiatry. And that's a style, I think, in which, and I think this is very common in among historians of psychiatry, not all, of course, and I, I don't really f- see a need to go into the important exceptions, but there's a tendency to look at the grim side um, of psychiatry in a way that is not done for other aspects of medicine, other specialties in medicine. You can read whole entire comprehensive books on the history of psychiatry, the history of madness that will not say anything about therapeutic gains from any treatments. Now that might sound like, um, a hyperbolic statement, but I actually don't think it is. I think this is actually fairly common. Sometimes people say, Well, I'm a historian, it's not my job to uh, assess efficacy, which I think is a cop out. Some people won't even adopt that cop out, they'll just simply write about abuses and negligence or other ways in which psychiatry has failed people or abused people. But without talking about therapeutic gains, psychiatry actually helping people. So I think this is kind of a, I think this is actually a very big problem. I think it's actually, frankly, an ethical problem because that could conceivably have the tendency to drive people away from treatment. And I, you know, I hope this doesn't sound um, sentimental, but, you know, summing up this very long, uh, digression on my motivations for writing the book, I was, I wanted it to be a book that offered some hope to people with depression. Uh, I, I'm very aware of the abuses in psychiatry's history and uh, involuntary treatments and abusive treatments and uh, etc. I'm really deeply aware of them. I've written about them but i i don't think it's um i think we do people with mental illnesses a real disservice if we present the history as being only one of abuse neglect and failure
0: yeah i appreciate that uh sort of trying to get a uh, a more cautious evaluation of the field um one that isn't uh, just uh, critical. Um, but also, yeah, really, really centering suffering in a sense, uh, w- whether that's suffering from psychiatry or suffering because of lack of any treatment, uh, you know, like these, these are two considerations that, uh, have to be carefully examined and measured um, but you do such a great job of that in this book. Um, I was wondering if, you know, thinking about this motivation here, it, getting into the actual history itself, um, wh- what do we gain by looking at this a- a- in one of your early chapters here, um, this difference between melancholia and depression, um, as well as, the you know, in this chapter, you also deal with this um, already belief system around both sort of biology, uh, if you will, obviously not using the term at the time, but biology and environmental or lifestyle uh, issues around depression. Um, So you move from humoral medicine uh, into the next chapter on, on psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy. But I was wondering if you could first talk about melancholia and depression differences.
1: Yeah. Um, So this was, um, this was a challenge for me because I'm um, I'm I'm a specialist in modern history, but I felt it was a challenge I had to take up um, because uh, for and that has to do with another uh, thing, which is uh, a lot of the recent historiography really stresses the newness of depression, and there is a lot that's new and a lot that's changed over the last. 120 years or so. I hope that's documented in the book. I think that, um, you know, before this explosion of books on antidepressants and depression came uh, after the 1990s, before that, both historians and psychiatrists generally just assumed melancholia and depression were the same thing. I could give you many examples of authors who simply equated them. And, you know, the way I put it in the book is to say these melancholia and depression cannot be identical categories because neither of them have been completely stable. Stanley Jackson, who really wrote the first great book on the history of depression, and it's a book I have a great deal of admiration for, that was the burden of his book. He wanted to show a strong continuity between um, syndromes, usually referred to as melancholia, dating back to antiquity and running up to modern concepts of depression. And in subs- in a lot of subsequent work after Jackson there's been a lot more emphasis on the rupture between the humoral theory and modern ideas about depression. I think we've overreacted a little bit. I don't want to revive um, exactly revive Jackson's emphasis on, um, on a strict continuity. I think he, I think for one thing, one mistake Jackson made, I think was Um, he underestimated the extent to which many writers who were operating in a humoral framework were actually just copying from one another. Um, And so the fact that there was a continuity in their descriptions of the syndrome um, isn't as telling as he would have us think. Um, So I wanted to bring back some measure of continuity into the discussion. But there was another thing that... um, I found when I um delved into the humoral um uh history and to the history of melancholia. And I, I do want to say, because I I sort of this is gonna be a little bit defensive. I acknowledge this is a bit of a defensive comment, but you know, I was frankly nervous about writing about pre-modern history. I've never done it before in any published work. I hadn't really written about Classical antiquity or the Middle Ages, since I was an undergraduate, um, but that's why I showed it to experts. I mean, I I showed it to a specialist in um, in and and medicine of antiquity, et cetera, Several people, early modernists, me, a medievalist. So it, it's been, it had some vetting. Um, but you know, one thing that I found was that in some ways the mind body wars of the last, say, maybe, I don't know, 200 years or so um, were a little bit less pronounced in earlier epics. And I'm not saying nobody emphasized mind over body, and I'm not saying nobody emphasized body over mind. And I'm not saying that the very dualism is new. In fact, it's often called a Cartesian dualism, but I think it goes back well before Descartes. And I think you can see mind-body-dualism in Plato and St. Augustine. So it's not that mind-body-dualism is a new thing, Mm -hmm. but I think that one thing you see in most of the humoral writers is an assumption that mind and body are always interacting. Um, And Psyche and Soma are, are sort of bound up in each other and I think that it's a what I found to be, re, in my opinion, a fairly relatively new phenomenon, is people insisting that one or the other must have priority. That either we need to um, stress that depression is a psychological condition that might have physical effects, or stress that it's a physical condition that gets expressed in affect. It's these. This is reductionism, right? And you know i don't think that um i don't think reductionism has served anybody any w- very well i think it's led to dead ends in science um there is a philosophical complication here um which i don't pretend i can really work out about mind and body which is you know i just spoke about mind and body interacting if you're truly a materialist um if if that is, if you truly believe that the universe and everything is made up basically of matter, then mind and body really aren't interacting. They're just different ways of describing the same thing. Um, you know, this gets me frankly, uh, into philosophical depths that I'm not prepared to resolve. Um, I'm going to leave that to the philosophers, but I do think that, uh, the historical record shows that, um, that reductionism to either the psychological or to the organic has not been helpful.
0: Right. And then picking this up, you know, of course, much later in, in the history here, um, thinking about, uh, as you, as you previously mentioned, the, uh, we'll say under research role of psychoanalysis and the, uh, treatment and assessment of depression um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how Freud and Klein and Jung and um, and and other psychoanalysts um, how they thought about depression and in particular this issue or, or this concept of, of psychic energy um, as a kind of which seems to me to be a, a kind of um, accounting of of depression, right? Too too much or not enough, uh, you know, this sort of imbalance that I'm sure we'll talk about later, uh, later when we talk about chemical imbalance. But um, yeah, thinking about psychic energy and the role of psychoanalysis in depression.
1: Yeah, well, um, as you probably have gathered, I'm deeply interested in, in psychoanalysis. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who will spend his leisure time Reading biographies of psychoanalysts, um, so this is a big interest of mine. But I also um, think that um, you know, psycho the psychoanalytic tradition is over identified with Freud himself, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: that over identification is something Freud, to his discredit, actually encouraged, and um, you know, by doing things like driving people like Jung out of the movement if they if they deviated too far from his views. But um, that was one of the things I wanted to show in that chapter. And I I would have liked, you know, I'd like to see other historians take this up and really show um, that um, psychoanalysis is a varied tradition and it's one that continues. And, um, you know, there's very, very, it's really an incredible paucity of historical work on psychoanalysis since, say, about the 1960s. As if you know, you know, Freud died in what 1939, I think it was, and um, the historians really haven't looked at the post-Freudian era. Of course, there are important exceptions. I'm, uh, you know, Elizabeth Lundbeck wrote a terrific book about. Um, more recent theories of narcissism a few years ago. So in the case, in the specific case of, well, anyway, the, the point is that um, depression gave me my, my opportunity to try to show this wider history, one which would acknowledge the importance of Freud, but wouldn't be obsessively, um, you know, hung up on Freud himself. And in the case of right. depression, you we see that actually Freud did not found the historical the uh, psychoanalytic theory of depression. The real founder Mm -hmm. was his contemporary, Carl Abraham, who really um, developed the really the key analytic concept of depression being anger turned inwards. And that idea of anger turned inwards, which not all psychoanalysts have believed in, um, but it was one that Freud took up and developed, and it was one that Klein took up and developed. Klein was uh, Abraham's analysing. Um, and but he t- but Klein took it in, in new directions as well, and it it remained a very important idea. Basically, the idea behind it is that um, when we have anger towards loved ones, that causes ambivalence, and ambivalence causes anxiety, and as a way of managing that anxiety we take the anger and instead of directing it towards the loved object, we direct it at ourselves. Now, to people who aren't sympathetic to psychoanalysis, this all sounds very fanciful, but I would point out that if you actually listen to the words of depressed people, they actually sound very angry at themselves. Very, They, they are filled with self-reproaches and guilt is a major symptom in most conceptions of depression. No other tradition, no other psychiatric tradition has given any kind of theory or account for why guilt is an aspect of depressive illness, except for psychoanalysis. That doesn't mean the psychoanalytic theory is right, but let's give it credit. It at least tried to deal with it. Um, As for psychic energy, you know... Um, I don't know. I mean, this is, um, this is one of those ideas in psychoanalysis that, um, is probably better thought of in, um, in some kind of metaphorical terms. I'm not sure I believe in the idea of psychic energy. I'm much more persuaded actually by the idea of, of anger turned inwards. I think there's, Mm -hmm. it, it has a certain plausibility to it. Um, but psychic energy, I don't know what I don't know that that was ever really well theorized by Freud. I think it was more of an assumption that he made, um, and I, certainly Jung took it up. Um, and you know, as you know from the book, one of the really interesting things is that um, it was taken up by the psychopharmacologist Nathan Klein. We can get to that in a minute. Um, I would only add this about psychic energy, which is that, well, I don't know that I necessarily, uh, agree with it as a concept or even, you know, um, you know, while I might not buy into it, it is an interesting phenomenon of depression that, um, people will report, you know, people with depression will report low energy sometimes to the point of immobility and it will have no relationship to known things. We know that, you know, give you energy, like say caloric intake, right? I mean, so, um, that, you know, the low energy, what is that? It, it might, you know, there, it might have a greater plausibility, even if we don't fully understand it. And, uh, you know, Freud always, did like to insist that um, his work would be borne out by um, more by brain science, neurology, greater anatomical knowledge. He was probably wrong about much of that. Um, some of his ideas and theories, I'm sure I, I feel fairly confident will never be borne out by brain science, but some of them might be. And that of course is what neuropsychoanalysis is trying to do. Um, many, uh, Many people who are um, dismiss psychoanalysis as unscientific and obsolete aren't even aware that there's this movement of, of neuropsychoanalysis going on, or if they are aware of it, they haven't really delved into it. And one of the interesting things about neuropsychoanalysis is that it's pretty empirical. That is, you know, Mark Psalms and the other people who are working in that area, they're not setting out to prove Freud right. They're setting out to see if they can find um, physical, organic ways of understanding certain psychoanalytic concepts, and if they can't, they decide they don't. Right? It's not. It's not a, a dogma. It's a. It's an open-ended scientific inquiry, as science should be.
0: Right. So that actually, I think, nicely brings us into the next chapter, which does deal with thinking about. Depression and more. Uh, how should we say diagnosable clinical diagnosable terms, as well as uh, other sort of empirical uh, assessments, um, right. including rating scales. So yeah, um, what is this? What is this move, sort of in the early mid twentieth century, that we we see these these new developments in uh, attention? And treatment and assessment of depression.
1: Well, it's part of um, a larger um, movement in medicine, right? I mean, after the Second World War, um, for example, I'm, this is just an example, but after the Second World War, the randomized clinical trial gradually became the gold standard for proving efficacy of a treatment, and um, and if if you if you're going to do um, a randomized clinical trial. You're going to need, uh, you're going to need to have agreed upon criterion, criteria for what actually constitutes the illness and what constitutes getting better from the illness. That's not easy to do in depression. Um, I don't think that it's been an entirely uh, failed effort. I don't. Um, I don't want to dismiss. The progress that's been made, I do think that these efforts at measuring, um, you know, we could we can critique them. Uh, you know, we can take, for example, the Hamilton Rating Scale, which is one of the, you know, one of the ways of evaluating. It's it's it was originally intended, if I'm remembering correctly, as a measure. Of severity, not as a diagnostic tool, but we can look at the Hamilton Rating Scale, and we can, as we're good at this as historians, we can look at it and say, well, it's a social construct, right? And and uh, look at ways in which it's it's arbitrary, and and how other ways that could be measured. We can even look at the DSM criteria for depression, as I point out in the first chapter of the book doing a critique of a psychiatric diagnostic category as a social construction, it's child's play. Anyway, as I say in the book, you can teach an undergraduate class to do it in 5-10 minutes. It's it's really easy to do. I'm not saying it's not an important effort. I'm not saying that, um, that um, we shouldn't be critical of psychiatric labels or that we shouldn't be critical of the DSM. But I also think that um, a little humility from the historian is also warranted that our colleagues in the mental health fields are trying to um, deal with a, a very pliable entity and they have good reasons for wanting to measure it and good reasons for trying to define it. And many of them know that the um pr- the criteria they're using have a certain amount of arbitrariness to them. Um, you know, the, it's a very common move. I think this is one of the most overworked metaphors in the field, but it's a very common move to refer to the DSM as psychiatry's Bible. So I, I really object to that rhetoric mostly on the grounds that it's become so hackneyed. So many people have done it now, called the DSM psychiatry's Bible. But like many metaphors that um, get overused, people aren't really thinking about what it means. And, um, you know, the Bible, a Bible, to call something a Bible, that means it's a sacred text that... um, and and I don't think you know psychiatrists actually treat the DSM as a sacred text in in practice. I think they many of them feel constrained by it because you know they they need to have DSM diagnosable entities for insurance companies and so forth, um, and they'd rather have a, a more flexible way of dealing with patients. So um, I guess um, you know. I guess the way I would sum up my view of this is that depression is hard to define and um, measuring it and counting it and measuring improvement is very complex, but that's different from throwing out the entire enterprise of diagnosis. And, um, and, you know, uh, I mean, you know we're on we're we're both on twitter we've see the debates that go on about depression just the other day i saw on depression um somebody objecting to other people putting depression in quotes right so this is um th- there's a little bit of turf war going on here um between um, psychotherapists who are not medical and the medical profession over whether depression counts as an illness. In my mind, call, you know subtracting depression from the category of illness is wrongheaded. I think it's working with a narrow and arbitrary idea of what constitutes an illness or what belongs to the medical domain. And if you'll remind me, I do want to talk about, I do want to return, to the question of politics and inequality in a moment, but I'm going to leave that for a moment because what I want to try to finish talking about now is that, um, you know, a student of mine um, had a, um, a, a years ago in, in a course I was teaching used a very powerful image to describe um, the problem of depression and as i say repeatedly in the book maybe too many times part of the problem is the ambiguity of language because depression does refer to a mood and a state that everyone feels as well as a clinical illness and the tricky part is defining exactly where one ends and one begins and that's not an easy thing i mean but let's you know uh, the image that my student used was of an archery target and she said you know, if you think of the bullseye as being the really severely depressed people with morbid suicidal thoughts or um, a literal inability to get out of bed, and then you think of the periphery is normal living, right? It has pain, it has grief, it has sorrow, and it has just plain old bad moods. And we're all somewhere at all points in our life, we're somewhere on this target And how close to the center do you have to be before it reaches clinical threshold? That is, um, you know, where does it become an illness? That's hard to say exactly, but that doesn't mean people at the center aren't sick. The exact border may be hard to define or another way. I'm sort of I'm 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 overflowing with metaphors here. So just let me indulge me in two more metaphors so one would be to say the existence of a gray area does not mean that black and white don't exist. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And the other metaphor I would, or the other comparison that comes to my mind right now is, you know, you can look at a tree leaf in May and it's green and you can look at it in um, September or October and it's red can you find the exact moment when it became a red leaf? You know, so the, that doesn't mean it wasn't ever really green or ever really red. There there are, you know, it's a muddy question, but that doesn't mean it's, um, it, that's no reason to throw out the whole diagnostic category. So if it's okay with you, can I turn to this political question now?
0: Please do. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, one thing I wanted to, to bring up, uh, especially in this this chapter we were just going over is, uh, sort of demographic differences is something that that comes up. Um, as well as you, you, do deal a little bit with this idea of political depression. So maybe that this would be a good point to talk about that.
1: Yeah. So, um, there is a strain of thought, um, that is critical of psychiatry, which rejects a medical model for depression um when people say they reject a medical model they mean they can mean several things they they can mean that they don't think depression is an illness they might you know describe it more as as a, a problem in living that's the phrase that thomas shaz used um, maybe people want to avoid that phrase because they want to avoid association with jāj. but that's, that is basically what they're saying. Another way of saying they reject the medical model or another thing that might be meant by that is that um, depression uh, shouldn't be treated with things like drugs by doctors. It should be um, treated with psychotherapy. Now, I, I'm actually very sympathetic to psychotherapy, Um, But I'm really of a whatever works persuasion, and I think different things work for different people. But there's another thing going on when people say they want to reject a medical model of depression. And that other thing that's going on is a concern that the rush to medicate suffering is um, drawing attention away from social problems. And the sources of our the social sources of our suffering, and I think there's something to that. I don't dismiss that argument. I do think that um, I, I think it's I think it's starkly, blatantly obvious that um, our society is generating a lot of gratuitous distress growing in income inequality for decades now um, climate change um, the relentless work demands of capitalism um, and the precariousness of contemporary capitalism um, it's not the first time in in the history of capitalism that there's been a lot of precarity but you know there was an attempt after the after the Second world War in many industrialized countries to um, create a more robust, um, sense of safety for people and, uh, whether through government programs or through unions and so forth. And I think that, uh, under neoliberalism, um, uh, we are, we are in a situation where far too many people are living in precarity and that precarity is even being celebrated by many people as simple or being, you know, discussed as you know, um, well, that's how the market works, and it it brings it somehow supposedly brings out the best in people um, by forcing them into the rigors of hard work and blah blah blah. I, I you know my symptom my sympathies are very leftist here, and i I think that um I I think that Spalone really I think that we re- if we really want to bring out the best in people in their creative capacities and their capacity to work and contribute then uh, we'd be providing them with more security, not less. So is this society we're living in, is it generative of depression? That's a hard question to answer because it's very hard to know whether there's actually a greater amount of any psychopathology, whether it's depression or psychosis or any kind. It's really hard to know whether there's a net difference in the amount of it at any time in history. There might be, but it's very hard to prove and that's uh, very hard to document with historical sources. But what we do know, what has been shown, is that inequality matters for depression. Broadly speaking, people of higher status, whatever way that status is secured, are at lower risk of depression than people of lower status in the society. And adversity matters for depression. Now, I have to be careful because the wrong idea could be taken from that. The wrong idea would be to say that um, depression is solely and only an illness of inequality or adversity. It's not. People can grow up in privileged circumstances, in loving families, and get depression. That may seem counterintuitive to some, but it's true. It may seem equally counterintuitive to others that depression would be an illness of adversity, because for many people, the the very idea of considering it a medical illness depends on the idea that it's not precipitated by adversity. But A lot of epidemiological study has shown that the majority of people who face severe adversity will not develop clinically diagnosable depression, and people who, as I mentioned a moment ago, people who have grown up in more comfortable circumstances and with less challenge can develop depression. That this is a problem for some people is itself weird because we know that this is how causation works with illness, and we've seen we see this in any number of illnesses. We can see it, you know. There's a large historiography of tuberculosis, which shows that tuberculosis is a disease of class that people of lower social classes in different countries everywhere have been shown to be at greater risk for tuberculosis, um, and you can see the same thing with, um, so for example, AIDS, um, it became very clear into some years into the AIDS epidemic that AIDS was a disease that thrived on poverty. Did that mean rich people couldn't get it? No. Did that mean all poor people got it? No. And we see the same thing with, um, COVID-19 now um, both in terms of morbidity and in terms of mortality, that is, um, people of, um, working class people are at high risk for COVID because often because they, you know, they can't not work indoors, for example, in large crowded places. And they're also at greater risk for mortality from COVID, um, for various reasons, um, probably most of them having to do with pre-existing ill health, which was itself a function of their class position. So does that mean that depression should be understood as a social problem and not a medical problem? Well, here again, I'm against either or, and I'm for both and just as I'm not for either mind or body. And just as I'm, you know, not for, well, I could go on. I mean, this is a sort of theme, I think, that comes through repeatedly in the book is that um, we're faced with false choices too often. No one would say that because tuberculosis or AIDS or COVID-19 isn't is a social problem which it which they of course are no one would say therefore they're not medical problems and nobody would want to deny anybody who has those problems i, I would hope nobody would want to deny people medical treatment actually of course i immediately remember that there are people who want to deny medical treatment to people but um you know <laughs> let's be <pay, laughs> they're bad people all of us a, a humane view of illness is that you know everyone who gets it, I think, should be able to get treatment for it. And I don't see any reason why social causation of depression should be any different. I saw someone on Twitter a few years ago, and I was not able to find or track down who I thought it was. I wrote to the person that I thought said this, and she said, nope, wasn't me. But somebody wrote, yeah, depression is an illness of inequality, but does that mean we, the depressed, need to wait for social revolution to feel better? So I, I thought that was a very pithy way of putting the problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I know we're running up uh, on time here, but I was wondering if I could just ask you a couple of questions before we wrap up. Uh, um, for, first of all, I just wanted to see, you know, building off of the the where you are saying about the experience of depression and a more uh, maybe humanitarian way of understanding it. Could you talk a bit about the uh, uh, focus here on, on depression memoirs and, and, you know, you do bring up some really interesting anecdotes and obviously we don't have time to go into those, but interesting anecdotes of various uh, creative fi- figures such as Rothko and Plath. Um, but yeah, I want you to see if you want to talk about that and maybe if there's time contradistinction with the uh, chemical imbalance idea here that is, it, you know, has been so predominant for, for so long that, that maybe a more humanitarian approach here might be a, a better way of, of dealing with that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I love the question because it allows me to go into so many things that are important to me. Um, so um, first of all, um, you know, I, sometimes I do, uh, talk about famous people, Charles Mingus, Sylvia Plath, Mark Rothko. Um, I did not want the book to be a parade of celebrities who had depression. And I, I used famous figures sometimes because I thought they were, uh, deeply illustrative of a particular point that I was trying to make in the case of, um, Rothko. It was the blurry borders problem. When exactly did this bad mood uh, give way to clinical illness? Which, in his case, it certainly did. I think is fairly obvious. Um, um, Plath and Mingus were used because i I wanted to show, uh, I wanted to give some vividness to the problem of adversity and social inequality. But Plath and Mingus also uh, raise a somewhat different in- issue, which is um, the. Um, you know, the depression uh can be very invisible to people uh to in some cases because there are people who don't look depressed, right? I mean, uh you can be you could be you can be extremely energetic and creative and like Mingus and Plath and that was also, you know, one of the people I discussed in the memoir chapter was Bruce Springsteen. You know, I didn't really, I didn't really know all that much. I, I mean, I've been listening to Springsteen since I was a teenager, which is a very long time ago, to be honest. Um, but, and he writes about all of this. I mean, of course, if you've listened to his music, he writes about a lot of darkness. Um, but he's also has this incredibly explosive dynamism and capacity for joy. And I had the privilege to see him live a few years ago. It was everything everyone had always told me like, oh my God, put this on your bucket list. You've got to see this. All right. So that's one thing about the, the, um, you know, the kinds of hidden depressions where if the person hadn't told you, you would never know. Um, but you know, um, one, I think that, uh, two things really came out to me when I looked at the memoir literature, and I looked at the memoir literature because I did want to deal with patient rep- self representation. Um, a lot of times in the history of psychiatry, uh, patient records are used. Um, I I have some questions about. I have some, and I've done that, by the way. I, I fully admit that I've done it. But uh, as I've gone on in my career, I've come to have growing ethical concerns about using um, patient records. Uh, even if they're anonymized, but that's a separate question. But the memoirs were uh, published. You know, they were easily available to me, and uh, they were a way to um, get into patient self-representation. Somewhat, I, I'm aware that they are not necessarily representative. Although, uh, in their defense, as a historical source, if we had a cache of written, um, if we had a cache of written accounts of say, um, I don't know, you know, of, of any illness from the 19th century or the 18th century comparable to what we have for, for depression, we would consider it a treasure. So we should use it. But two things came out to me, uh, from the memoir literature. And one of them, the first one relates to the, um, relates to the question you talked about, before about uh, chemical imbalance and we haven't really had a chance to talk at length about um, about psychopharmacology and of course that's an extremely important part of this story and it's an important part of the book um, but uh, you know, people listening you'll just have to read it to get everything I said about that but what I what I found in um, the memoir literature was um, a profound ambivalence about antidepressants and a kind of attraction-repulsion f- uh, phenomenon regarding the concept of chemical imbalance. That is, um, there was a way in which patients found this idea of chemical imbalance to be attractive, even seductive, comforting. But there was another way in which they found it um, to be reductive and um, and, and incomplete and and troubling, really. And so I think that um, what uh, and so you know in a sense, much of my book argues for an eclectic approach to depression instead of a narrow or reductionist one. And in a way, I, what I would say is don't take my word for it listen to the patients. That's what they're saying. They're saying they want to be viewed as a totality. They want to be viewed as a person with a psychological history and a life history and a story to tell. They want to be seen as persons embedded in a social context that's important to them. They also want their organic biological problems to be and symptoms to be managed and dealt with, and if possible, when possible, even cured, which is you know, rather rare, unfortunately, with depression, but it's certainly a goal worth considering. So that's, that's one thing that I took from the memoir literature. The other thing that I want to emphasize about the memoir literature is that this question of whether depression qualifies as an illness, um, is one that it's not one that, um, patients with depression speak about univocally. That is to say, they don't necessarily all advocate that, yes, this is obviously an illness. Um, I think you can see a certain amount of ambivalence, as just as you can see it about the antidepressant drugs that many of them take, you can see a certain amount of ambivalence about um, this concept. Um Of of depression as an illness, a little bit of uncertainty. Is this really an illness? And and you can see that. At the same time, um, many of them argue strenuously for a medical model. And when I say that, I, you know, it's not that they say that without any lingering self-doubts of their own. But one of the things that you find, if you look at the memoirs, is that. It's, um, it's really hard for people with depression to be told, you know, you don't have an illness to most, to, to most of the people that I read, um, that smacks of saying, um, just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, which you would never say to a person with illness right you, you would never say to a person with an infectious disease oh you know snap out of it and so there is um a desire to be in what talcott parson's called the sick role and to occupy that and um and i i'm sympathetic with that because i don't i don't um as I've said at the as I said at the beginning of the interview I, and I've stressed repeatedly, I don't see grounds, uh, strong grounds for excluding depression from the medical domain. Um, I think that doing so um, has risks. I think that we can continue to have uh, philosophical, sociological debates over, um, where, what exactly a clinical depression is and how exactly it's bad from depression as mood. Um, I'm, I'm not against continuing debate about that, but I have yet to see an argument that really convinced me that, um, that a medical model of depression is useless or harmful.
0: Well, thank you for speaking on so many of those topics. Um, I was wondering before we leave, if you could let us know what, what projects are you working on now?
1: Well, um, there are two things uh, on my, on my plate one now, right now, but um, you know, actually one of them, I I think I won't mention because um, it's, it's in review and I don't know uh, where that's going to go. But I've actually decided uh, to take on something fairly ambitious for my next book project. And that is I want to try to write um, a general history of madness and mental health care in the United States. Um, And I will tell you why. Um, To the best of my knowledge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think anyone has tried anything like that since Gerald Grob's The Mad Among Us appeared in 1995. And there are two things um, that I would like to bring to this project that um, Grob did not. One is that the field has moved on, right? I mean, we know so much more now. Um, f- when Grob was writing, there was so little literature, for example, on race and mental health and mental illness. Now there's a getting to be a fairly substantial literature on that. And so there's a lot to bring in. Uh, and of course, that book also, that 1995 book was Written really early in the antidepressant era. And so, you know, a lot's changed in the world, not just in the historiography. So that's motivation number one. Motivation number two is sort of similar to what motivated Empire of Depression. Um, Grob was really interested in policy and he was very good at studying policy. Um, And policy is important. And I want that to be a part of what I do in this upcoming project. But Again, I feel that looking at uh, mental health, mental illness from a policy perspective puts you at some remove from the experience. And um, that's that's what another thing that I would like to bring into this. Um, I'd like to um, make it a little bit less experience distance.
0: Well, that sounds like a a very interesting project, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Um, Yeah, thanks again. Take care.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. Bye.